famous author of books like Cujo and Carrie, the horror author Stephen King once said, I like to scare people, and people like being scared. I don't know if people like being scared. I don't. But I do know that people are scared. These crazy, uncertain times, is there any man or woman who's not assaulted by some form of fear? And I'm not going to list for you the, the, the growing list of phobias out there. You've probably Googled it and seen it. And, and many of those seem so esoteric that they don't seem very relevant to you. And so you don't have many of those phobias, but that doesn't mean you're not gripped by fear as well. In these days, fear comes in many strange disguises and many a variety of a wardrobe. If it's not your health that you fear, and then maybe every meaningless uh, symptom is evidence to you of your certain doom, maybe it's the fact that you fear losing your youthfulness and your vitality. Maybe you fear growing old. Maybe you are young and strong. You fear that you won't accomplish enough. You won't experience enough. You won't have enough. Some people, fearful of what life may bring, end up wanderingly, wandering aimlessly through drinking or sexual promiscuity to quiet the fear. Some people are just fearful, and they don't even know what they are afraid of. And here is one of the, the main theses of what I'm saying this morning. If we're not careful about what... We fear how we fear it and why we fear it. It is going to change us in ways that we don't want it to. The reality is, friends, fear changes us, right? Fear has an impact upon us. That's just the reality. But if we're not careful about what, how, and why we fear what we do, that change will rarely be good. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, almost without being aware of the change, many people have permitted fear to transform the sunrise of love and peace into a sunset of inner despair. The poet Emerson once wrote, he has not learned the lesson of life who does not every day surmount of fear. Fear is everywhere. Today, we're going to be talking about the gospel and fear. And so kids here, I know there's a ton of kids up there. I want you to do this because this is going to be really fruitful for you and your parents. I want you to write down or draw what are some of your fears. What are the two or three things you're afraid of? Write it out. Draw a picture of it if you can and talk to mom and dad about that. Mom and dad, this is a wonderful time to talk to them about how the gospel relates to our fears. Talk about that. Have that conversation. Email Hannah how it went and then we will enter you into our ongoing uh, weekly prize for that. So that's what I'd like you to do. Fear is everywhere and thankfully, friends, fear is also in the Bible. The Bible, in fact, is a book about fears, isn't it? Real fears, imagined fears, temporal fears, eternal fears, good fear, bad fear, and every other form you could possibly think of. If you are fearful, then the Bible was written for people like you. If you are fearful, then the gospel is how you, as Emerson said, surmount a fear. So this morning, we're going to have just two simple points. Fear in the Bible, fear in the gospel. So let's look at them one at a time. Fear and the Bible. Did you know that the most common message God gives to humanity in the Bible is do not fear? Over 300 times, over 300 times, some form of that command, do not fear in the Bible. More than any other message God repeats to humanity, he says, do not 
fear. Friends, just on that statistic alone, doesn't that tell you that God knows a little bit about the way we're wired, right? And he talks about not fearing in all kinds of situations and circumstances. I just want to give you a few to show you the expansiveness to which God says, do not fear. God says, do not fear if you are fearful that my promises towards you would fail. You don't have to look at these because we're going to go through them pretty quick order. But if you're a note taker, I'll, I'll, I'll call out the site. Genesis 15.1. The Lord, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be great. To people who were afraid for their physical safety, that God would abandon them in their most dire time of need, God said to them, do not fear. Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you fear today, you shall never see again. To people who were afraid that God would provide, that God would in fact bless them, God said, do not fear, 1 Chronicles twenty-two thirteen. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. And finally, God says, I'm God. You don't have anything to fear. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 8. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. So to people who are doubting, maybe God, is God's promises for me? Will God provide? Will God protect? Will God bless? There are so many other things we might be fearful of. And in all these situations, God has the same message. Do not fear. Yet if you're familiar with your Bibles, you've got to ask the question, does the Bible have a contradiction? Because the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. But second only to that is the command, fear God. So, so what's going on? Is, is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Friends, we need to be clear here that God does not say, do not fear, because there's something inherently wrong with fear. Let me say that again. God is not commanding us not to be afraid because there's something inherently wrong with fear. In fact, friends, fear can be a creative and a positive force for good, can't it? Fear of the dark. Humanity afraid of the dark, and we made light. Fear of pain and suffering pushes us to advancements in medical procedures. Fear of war pushes us to diplomacy. Fear itself is not the problem, but what we fear, how we fear it, and why we fear it. And the reason that this is so important is because by virtue of the nature of fear, we never stop to think about it. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but, but boy, those are so important questions to ask. What is it that I'm fearing? Why am I fearing it? And how is it showing in my life? And the reason I stress that is because the nature of fear is so visceral, so real, it's so there. It grips us, and we never stop to think about why it's got us in its grip and how it does grip us. Friends, because at the end of the day, we don't want to permanently get rid of fear. Even if that were to be practical, that wouldn't be desirable. So the real question isn't, how do we get rid of fear? The real question is, is it a good fear or it is a bad fear? And how do we know? So let me give you an illustration of a good fear. 
you fear that a shark might bite you while you're swimming in the Pacific Ocean. That's a good fear. It makes absolute sense. It makes you cautious. It makes you circumspect. It makes you check your surroundings. Here's a bad fear. You fear a shark might bite you while you're swimming in the Larson's backyard pool. Right? It's totally nonsense. It's bad. It makes you neurotic. It drains your emotional and psychological energies. So there's a good fear. Notice it's the same exact fear, but there's so many variables that change it from being a good fear to a bad fear. And the Bible consistently tells us that fear of the Lord is good because it makes us cautious. It makes us circumspect. It makes us think about our surroundings. It guides us. It shapes us. But the Bible is also equally clear that fear of most everything else is bad. Make you neurotic. It will drain your life of energy, or in the words of Proverbs, it will be a snare to you. It will grab you, it will capture you, it will hold you back. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus made a very similar contrast. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Friends, I love this very broad perspective that Christ brings to fear. In this truest sense of the word, what Jesus is saying is, fear God and you won't fear anything else. Don't fear God and you will fear everything else. I have always said, if you are not afraid, right? If you're not afraid in this world, you're not paying attention to what's going on in this world. This is the reality. But if you stay afraid, you are not paying attention to what God says in his word. See, the Bible is very aware that there are real fears, and that's why scripture addresses it almost more than any other topic that it does. But the solution is not to eliminate fear. That's the conventional wisdom. The Bible's wisdom is always putting our conventional wisdom on its head. The solution is not to eliminate fear, but learn to fear something far greater worth fearing. The Bible is all about fear because fear is a huge reality in our lives, but it's really important to understand, am I gripped, am I controlled, am I ruled by good fears or bad fears. Fear of God in the biblical sense of that expression means you won't fear anything else, but if we don't fear God, it means I will fear everything else. Why? Because fear has power. And that power is power over our behaviors, isn't it? Fear has power, and the power it yields is over the way we choose to live our lives. When you fear something, you will live your life in accordance with that fear. Let me give you some examples. If you fear poverty, you're going to work hard and do everything you can to prevent it. If you fear rejection, you will avoid any situation where that might happen. If you fear failure, you will avoid taking any risk. If you fear the opinions of others, you'll do everything you can to manage your image and make sure no one really knows who you are. Friends, this, this fundamental truth is why, contrary to what most people think, fear is not first a psychological, emotional dynamic or issue, but a theological worship issue, which is why we cannot talk about fear unless we also talk about the gospel. So that's what we're going to talk about next, fear and the gospel. And one of the things... Um, 
that I've been teaching a biblical counseling class at our church for the last three years, every January, February, and, and, and March. And one of the things I try to teach in the counseling class is the important life skill of learning when to listen to and when to ignore our emotions. That is a really important life skill, right? Some people, they never listen to their emotions, and some people always listen to their emotions, and they always get themselves into a wreck. So we try to teach them when to listen and when not to, because emotions have a logic to them, friends. Emotions have a language to them. What anger says is, I've been wronged, right? Which is very different what shame. Shame says, I'm wrong. Anxiety says, my life or, or something is out of control. What do you think fear says? It's pretty easy when you stop and think about it. Fear says, I am in danger. Anger says, there's something wrong. Right? And, I'm not, and I'm not saying these are good or bad. I'm just helping you understand the language of emotions. Anger says there's something wrong. Shame is categorically bad because shame just says, I'm wrong. Right? Anxiety just tells you things are out of control. And that's why you just mull things over time and time again in your mind because you're trying to get control. But fear says you are in danger. And what do we do when we are in danger? We seek to escape or we seek someone or something that's going to make us safe. And friends, this safety or escape can look a thousand different ways, right? And that's why it's so often hard to spot fear because it looks so different. On the one hand, it can be simply getting up and leaving an awkward conversation or a moment. It can be buying a car with more airbags than cup holders, right? It can be buying way more life insurance than you possibly need, me, would need. It could mean carrying pepper spray with you wherever you go. It could mean voting a particular way. It could mean avoiding certain places or people or conversations. The way we seek escape and safety is as numerous as the dangers we think we face. Because fear says, I'm in danger and I need to be safe. I need to escape. And here's the real cash value of this insight, friends. Especially for your spiritual growth, for your spiritual growth. What you fear will give you insight into what you worship. This is the, 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 the see, this is why you guys have be taking our biblical counseling classes. This is the cash value. What you fear gives you insight into what you truly will worship. In other words, fear reveals our hearts, reveals our worship which then shows in the choices we make with our lives, shows with our behaviors, right? So regardless of, of whatever I might profess with my mouth, the fears that grip you and the choices that you make to deal with those fears will tell you more about your spiritual condition than your church attendance, than your giving record, or how loud you might sing on a Sunday morning. The fear, and, and it's all different for each of us, but we all have them. The fear that grips you and shapes the way you live reveals more about your spiritual condition than any other of the things we typically associate with what a mature Christian looks like. Because fear is always about our feelings of danger and where we go for salvation. Fears reveals idols, right? Fear reveals idols. And what are idols other than false saviors? And this is why fear in the gospel has to go hand in hand. Our fear of death, our fear of the unknown, our fear of suffering, our fear of pain, our fear of being hurt, our fear of sickness, all these things can reveal idolatries in our hearts. 
idols of safety, idols of comfort, idols of ease, idols of prosperity, idols of health and security, and on and on it could go. And the deceptive thing about these saviors, the very deceptive thing about them is they can provide a measure of safety and escape, and that's why we're tempted by them. That's why we can trust in them. But each one of these, at best, eventually fail us, and at worst, they will betray you. You read all through the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Idols always promise big. They always promise much, but deliver so little. Realize what it is you fear. Maybe frame it this way. Tell me what you fear, and I will tell you what you worship. If you fear rejection, it's a good chance you'll worship approval. If you fear suffering, it's a good chance you'll worship comfort. If you fear sickness, it's a good chance you'll worship health. And you will obey and do whatever the gods and idols of approval, comfort, and health ask you to do, even if they're inconsistent with what Jesus asks of you. That's the shocking thing about this this fear-worship dynamic. It will play itself out in 10,000 little details, so small that it's barely perceptible to you. You won't even realize the moment that your sunrise of love and peace turned into a sunset of inner despair. Because fears, the kinds that are really meaningful, they're never big and obvious. They're always subtle. And so subtle, almost almost imperceptible, that you may even deny that you're actually afraid of them until sunrise has become sunset. This is why what Hebrews says in chapter 2 is so powerful. The writer says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, right? So it's talking about Jesus' incarnation. Remember we talked about this? Jesus, Jesus took on all the dynamics of human life. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and verse 15 is so powerful, And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, fear is theological worship before it is psychological, emotional. As a matter of fact, unless you understand that theological worship dynamic, you will not truly understand or be able to shape the psychological, emotional aspect of fear in our lives. See, what Hebrews chapter 2 is saying is that Jesus conquered the greatest fear so that none of us must be slaves to any fear. That's what fear does, doesn't it, friends? I love the term that Hebrews 2 uses, slavery, because that's what fear does. It, It demands servitude from us, doesn't it? It requires that we obey it. It demands authority over our lives, and as it does so, it takes our very lives from us. And friends, this is why it's so important to ask yourself, what do I fear? How do I fear it? And why do I fear it? Because the answers to those will be very revealing to the way you can overcome it and your spiritual growth. What do you fear? Right now, if you were to stop, if we were to take 60 seconds of silence, what would be the fear that grips you right now? And then do the great work of asking yourself, why? And how is it showing in my 
life. Friends, if we can trust Jesus to deal with the greatest fear humanity could ever face, a real fear, an eternal fear, don't you think we can trust him with any fear you might face today? If I fear rejection, and who here doesn't fear rejection, right? If I fear rejection, I know Christ was rejected. He came to those who should have known him and loved him, but they did not know him, John tells us. Not only does Christ know rejection, he gets that feeling well. Not only does he know it and get it, but he assures me that the Father will never reject me. I will never know rejection from the one from whom it truly matters because of what Jesus has done. Friends, and, and there is a gospel promise parallel for every possible fear that you might be facing in your life. The trick is, number one, being honest to say, this is what I'm fearing and doing the hard work, whether you do it on your own or you go to others and say, this is what's gripped me, this is how I'm living, and I think this is why. What is the gospel promise that parallels this to help me overcome this fear? And friends, I would fail you as a pastor if I didn't address the elephant in the palm court. And that is right now the fear of, that it has gripped so many people in our society and some people in our church of, uh, regarding this COVID-19. Now, now, some of you are afraid that this COVID shark might bite you. And some of you are swimming in the Pacific Ocean. Well, then the word to you is obviously be cautious, be circumspect, be circumspect right? That's a real issue. Some of you are there. I get that. We as elders get that. And we want to encourage you, be cautious and be circumspect. But there are some of you who are afraid that this shark might bite you and you're swimming in a pool, right? And my concern is I don't want you gripped by fear. I want you gripped by hope. And so let's talk a little bit about that. While fighting fear with faith is our true source of courage, it doesn't hurt to fight fear with some fact, plain old facts as well. And this is something I want to share that we're not seeing enough on the news. And call me cynical, but I think news like insurance salesmen, sorry insurance salesmen, but you make your bread and butter off of scaring people about what might happen. So just in case, have some insurance. The news feeds make their bread and butter by things that grab us, scare us, and we want to know. Because control, we think, or knowledge results in control, we think, right? And so I don't think enough of this news is being out there. So I'd just like to encourage you that for the past three months, I've been tracking two things in South Orange County, uh, in, in eight different cities, Mission Viejo, Lake Forest, Laguna Hills, Elisa Viejo, Laguna Woods, Ladera Ranch, and San Clemente. Granted, not all the cities in, San, in South Orange County, but enough of a sample to say this is pretty much South Orange County. The two things I've been tracking are the prevalence rates and morbidity rates of COVID-19. Now, big words, prevalence rates just simply means the spread of a particular disease in a given population. Morbidity simply means death rate of, that, of a particular disease given the population, right? So to be clear, this is not a scientific study, okay? Uh, I'm not taking into account multiplying factors and all of that. And I was just having a, a conversation with a couple of young men at our, uh, who visited our church, and it was funny because he leans over as we were having this conversation and says, so what, I mean, do you, do you have any background? And, and it, it, was a, it was a good conversation, but he got a little tense, and he said, yeah, because like no one gets tense over COVID-19, right? So he says to me, well, you got any background in statistics? I said, well, I, I studied statistics in my PhD work. I mean, is that, is that helpful? And so, so while this is not scientific, I know a little bit about statistics. I'm not just spitballing it here. 
This is true only if you live in South Orange County, right? Not Central Orange County, not Northern California, let alone any other state. And I hope this encourages you because, like I said, I don't think we're hearing this enough. And by the way, all of my information comes right from the Orange County Register. Some of you may get their emails. They send out weekly updates. So this isn't hidden information. I didn't get this from a right-wing conservative info wars or some left-wing site. This is just Orange County Register. You can get these numbers too. Uh, but you've got to do the math and figure out the statistics. So if you live in South Orange County, the prevalence rate of COVID-19, remember the, the spread of the disease in proportion to the population, at its highest is eight-tenths of 1%. At its lowest, it's three-tenths of 1%. In other words, the spread of COVID-19 in South Orange County, again, South Orange County, is less than 1% relative to the entire population as of August 20th. This is information I got on Thursday. I updated my records on Thursday. Six months into this pandemic, the prevalence rate in our area is less than 1% of the population. In the three months that I've been tracking these prevalence rates in each of the eight cities, the increase of COVID-19 has increased by three-tenths of 1% six months after our pandemic was officially called. What that means is one-tenth of 1% every month, it, it, the prevalence rates increase. In other words, um, it is not nearly as bad as we were originally told. Let's talk about the morbidity rates of COVID-19. This is the how much people die uh, relative to the population, relative to the population. At its highest of South Orange County, the death rate, the morbidity rate of COVID-19 is three-tenths of 1%. At its lowest, it's 0% relative to the population. Now, that doesn't mean nobody's died. You have to understand population rates and relevance and all that. Relative to the amount of people it's 0% have died, and on the low end, on the high end, three-tenths of 1%. To put this in some kind of perspective, because these are, what kind of numbers are we talking about? If you compare the 2018 figures of the U.S. Department of Transportation regarding California deaths in accidents, okay, if you live in South Orange County, you have as much chance of dying from COVID-19 as you do of dying in a car accident in California. So I, I just want to give you that perspective because that's not the kind of angst we seem to sense on the newspapers or the news apps or conversations. So, so this is a very different scenario here. Now let me put this positively. Let me put it positively. If you went to the racetrack, and I'm not encouraging gambling, but let's just say you, because it makes the point. Let's say you go to the racetrack and you get word and you, you know that slow regard has a 99.2% chance of winning the race, and Quick Bunny has a 0.8 tenths of 1%, where's the smart money gonna go? You would be on slow regard. As a matter of fact, you'd be like, yeah, 99.2, I'm taking all the money out of my bank, and I'm putting it, don't gamble, I'm putting it on slow regard, because I'm gonna be rich. So when we change the illustration, you're not, you're not worried about, man, there's a 0.8% chance, man. I mean, quick bunny, what if, what if? You'd be like, oh, you're an idiot. I, it's all on slow regard. My point simply is, if we just change the metaphor, our behaviors are radically different. If Emerson is right, and we have not learned life's lesson until and unless we learn to surmount our fears, what is a Christian to do? And I'll end with this. 
Number one, face your fear for what it is and what it may for what it is and what it isn't. We know from psychological studies you cannot cure fear by repressing it or ignoring it. That actually multiplies a lot of inner conflicts. You cannot cure fear by ignoring it or repressing it. So you actually have to face it. Fear is often the misuse of our imagination when brought into the open and looked at objectively and sought counsel from others. You may realize the foolishness of the fear that has gripped you and controlled you for so long. One psychiatrist wrote, ridicule is the master cure for fear and anxiety. It's like that scene, any Harry Potter fans here? It's like that scene in in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban when Professor Lupin had all the students line up and he says, I'm going to open this door and out comes the the Bogart, the Bogart, the Bogart, the the, 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 this thing that will manifest your greatest fear. And so he opens the locker and this thing comes out and he says, all you do is take your wand and say, ridiculous, and it takes on a foolish appearance and you laugh at it and the the Bogart, the booger, whatever, goes, freaks out, goes back into the locker. We have to face our fear because some of our fears may be laughable. And we've done, dealt with them. But some of our fears may be real. And when you're dealing with the real fear, friends, let it push you to applying the promises of the gospel into your life rather than pushing you to some idol of safety that you are tempted to create, to serve, and to worship So the first thing is face it for what it is and isn't. And that will lead you to another decision tree. And the second point is recognize and repent. Here we go. Recognize in that moment if it's a real fear. Recognize the real desire that you have to trust another Savior than to trust Jesus to help you deal with that fear. Friends, can I be honest? We are constantly trusting other Saviors when we are fearful whether that savior is Jim Beam or Jack Daniel, or that savior is escapism to video games or promiscuous relationships or whatever it might be, we are always looking to be protected from our fears by false saviors who promise much and deliver little. Recognize that tendency. We all have it, right? You're not alone. Recognize it for what it is and turn from it to the savior who wants to deliver you in earnest. So face your fear for what it is and isn't. Recognize and repent if necessary. The third and last thing, grow in love. Friends, the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is love. A mother will overcome her fear of water if her child is drowning, not because all of a sudden she has now found the courage over water, but she cares for her child too deeply to care for herself. A life of love will always move outward, but a life of fear inevitably moves inward. And friends, there are ways to do both. I know of families who are swimming in the Pacific Ocean, and so they are cautious, and they are, they are wisely not connecting and going out or whatever it is. But even in the midst of that, they're sending out cards, they're encouraging people, they're emailing people, they're getting into the Word. That's a wise thing to do. That's evidence that love, that that you can grow in love even while being cautious in this moment. Grow in love, friends, and fear will diminish in proportion to your love. That's what 1 John 4.18 teaches us. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And the reason this is true is that we can love because, verse 19 tells us, he first loved us. We surmount our fears by facing them for what they are through our faith in Christ. We surmount our fears by repenting and rejecting false saviors who can only distract us but never truly conquer our fear. We surmount our fears through love. And the way this happens is first experiencing the love of Christ for you that starts by focusing upon the cross where Jesus faced all of our greatest fears so we would never have to face them. Not merely did he face them, he overcame them, he conquered them so we wouldn't be conquered by them. Friends, this word is not, incur- this is not, and I, close, I, I conclude with this, you can see evidence, I'm putting away my notes, so we're almost wrapping it up. Um, this is not intended, and please do not use this message to browbeat somebody who is behaving in a way that you wouldn't. They may be in the Pacific Ocean and you don't know it, right? If you know somebody who's swimming in a pool, use this to encourage them. Remember what I said, guilt and shame will change behavior, but only hope changes the heart. We need to give them hope, right? Let's do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. As Hebrews tells us, we do not have to be living in the fear of death. And death is the ultimate form of non-existence, of non-being. And so, Lord, arguing from the greater to the lesser, if you've saved us from our greatest fear, what fear can you not deliver your people from? Lord, help us to be honest with our fears. That's the first thing, Lord. we got to be honest that I'm fearful. And then to ask, why am I fearful and how was it shaping me? And Father, for those of us who may be being unwise and we should need to be more cautious, we pray that you would give us wisdom for that. For those of us who are allowing fear of something that shouldn't dictate us, dictate our lives, we pray, Lord, we would repent and trust you. Lord, we pray that all of us would not try to challenge fear with guilt or shame, but we would challenge fear with hope. That is what the gospel is, a message of hope. And we thank you that we have it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.